Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. Find us on Facebook as well. Search for Political Beats. We invite you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and at nationalreview.com. Click on the podcast tab. Find all the NR podcasts. Listen, enjoy, share, leave reviews. And brand new this week, the first change in the opening uh, spiel since episode one, We've got a Patreon to tell you about. If you have not joined us on Twitter or Facebook, you might not know about this, so here you go. Patreon.com slash political beats. What we've done, in very short, is convince National Review to allow us to remain ad-free. We've had some in the, in the past, and, and uh, we want this to, to be a, a welcoming place for people of all political persuasions. It's about the music and not... Uh, Anything political at all, as you know, if you've been listening. So uh, we're ad-free, but that means they're not going to monetize it for us. So we're doing what we can over here. Patreon.com slash political beats. There are different levels. You can vote on future episodes. You can get a shout-out on an episode. Uh, You can get early access to episodes as well as a file with a higher audio quality. That's one of the levels. And then uh, finally, the highest level entitles you to access to exclusive episodes once a month from Jeff and me, we're thinking 30 to 60 minutes, smaller subjects, some suggestions from the audience. It may be the, the only way you ever get us to do a Huey Lewis in the <laughs> News episode. Let's put it that way. Yes, some of those bands that might not deserve a two and a half hour long episode, but really fit well into a 60 minute type uh, little segment. That's what we'll do on some of those exclusive episodes. Uh, all the information is available at patreon.com slash political beats. We invite you to uh, check it out and sign up and ask us if you got questions. I'm on Twitter too, Scott Bertram, S C O T B E R T R A M. My tag team partner standing by, as always, is Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I am doing great. I am super excited to cover what I consider to be one of the most underrated comedy troops of the last, you know, 40 years. And I think the Wayans family doesn't get the credit it deserves for being as funny as they are. And I know it's a bit of a, a change of pace for this show to cover a TV show instead of a band, but I, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really up for this. Homie, don't play that. You know, you stole my joke. I was going to say the same thing. Great minds, I guess. I have many deep thoughts on the Fly Girls and Fire Marshal Bill, and I'm totally lost on <laughs> this band tonight, but we'll be okay. Uh, at Esoteric CD is Jeff online on Twitter. Our uh, guest on today's program, contributing editor at the Daily Co's Elections. Uh, also, you can find him on Twitter at Steve Singizer. He's Steve Singizer. Steve, how are you? Guys, it's been, you know, it's a pleasure. It's been a long time listening to these shows and finally glad to be on one with a band that, that I love very well. So I'm happy to be here and thank you guys for the invitation. We uh, will get to the band in just a moment, but we allow our guests to uh, introduce themselves. Tell us a bit about how you are involved in the political world. Steve, the floor is yours. So I am a big elections guy, have been since I was in college. And when the Internet became a thing, I started to cruise various Internet sites trying to pick up political intel. And I came across a site called Swing State Project and another one called Daily Co's and in 2010, the two merged together, and uh, they reached out, asked me to be a contributing editor around that time, and I've been there ever since. It's a big part of my life. I also, in my day job, I teach social studies, so I, I kind of can't get away from it no matter how hard I try. <laughs> but uh, but it's nice to actually talk about something that's not government, especially, you know, 
something I love as much as music. So uh, that's that's how I got into politics. But music is my second love. And that's why you're here. And that's why we're talking today about the band, as Jeff alluded to, Living Color. Living Color. And uh, this, I mean, people know one song, Slam Dunk, Guaranteed. They might not know uh, more than that, or at least a lot more than that. We're here to fill in the gaps today on the career of Living Color. And we head back to Steve take the floor explain why you love this band how you got into them and why people should care about this music steve well it's i've got a practical reason and i've got a personal reason the practical reason is it's hard to find if you go individual by individual it's hard to find many bands that are just as good at their crafts individually as the members of this band are and the band's been very stable only one major personnel change but from the beginning Corey glover there are not many more qualified, more talented, more versatile rock musicians, vocalists than Corey Glover. Vernon Reed, I would fight anybody on saying he's one of the 10 best rock guitarists of the modern era. The original bassist, Muzz Skillings, was so good he got not one but two bass solos. And how often did you hear those in rock songs? And then when they were, when Muzz leaves the band in 1992, who do they get? Doug Wimbish who was responsible for the most recognizable bass line in the 1980s. He's the guy that did White Lines, and they get him to come on board. And then you've got Will Calhoun, fantastic drummer. So that's my practical reason. My personal reason, this is the very first band that I saw live when I was a junior in high school. I'm a little older than you guys. I'm a junior in high school in L.A. I got scalped for $62.50. Yeah. That, it, in 1989, too. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that was legit money. That was about two months uh, of saving. Um, That's like $5,000 in 2020. Yeah, uh, right. right? <laughs> exactly. Well, it was a lot to me back then. I was a gardener at the time, and that was every spare change I could hoover up. But I got to see the Steel Wheels tour. It was Rolling Stones, Guns N' Roses, and Living Color. Now, most of the L.A. Coliseum crowd came in around 8 or 9 when Guns N' Roses got on stage, but me and my buddies, we were there right at 5 o'clock because Living Color was actually the reason I got tickets to that concert because that was the band I really wanted to see. No disrespect to those other two bands that are obviously legends, but man, and we'll talk. I know we're going to talk more about this later. This band live is just unreal. They're my first concert. When my oldest child became old enough and was of age and was a budding guitarist, it was her first concert. Um, can't say enough about them as a live act.
for me, Living Color, you know, started off as that that one band that had the buzz track that you heard getting played on MTV. And we all know which one that is. It's Cult of Personality, right? That's what Scott was alluding to when he said there's the one song that I guarantee that you know. Um, But then my brother got the album, Vivid, right? I don't know why the heck he decided to get it. He picked up a lot of interesting stuff over over those early years when we were both kids. And so I guess it must have been 1988 or 89. So I'm like seven or eight years old, man. And I'm just listening to this music. And I'm thinking to myself, hey, this is actually this is better than ACDC. <laughs> I like this more than, you know, uh, White Snake and uh, Poison and all the other hair metal stuff that I've been listening to. And I had no idea who these people were. It was just music to me. It was a sound that came out of the speakers. I'd hear like the guitars and of course something that I only learned later when I of course became a music fanatic and uh, you know I deepened my my roots and I and I learned about all of the influences that had played a role in that living color sound is how many tributes they were paying to like other artists and how like boy you can hear like you know some prog here, you can hear some heavy metal here, some Zeppelin here, some funk and soul here. I didn't know any of that. All I knew is that I really loved that song about the landlord. And I really, really loved hearing that song about, you know, you know, the uh, you know the you know, the uh, the one that had uh, you know John F. Kennedy saying, "Ask not what your country can do for you." And, it, and uh, this is, of course, the way that an eight-year-old relates to music. But what I then discovered as I, I went and I got times up later, so that was probably around what, ten or eleven at that point, I suppose. Um, I was like, "Wait, dude." This is funny, and this has to be pointed out. It's like, wait, all these guys are like black dudes? That's a real interesting change of pace. And one of the things that really has to be pointed out is that what impresses in a lot of ways about Living Color is they got out of their act. We talk about, like, you know, who do you think are the great sort of blue-eyed soul singers? You know, like, you know, white guys who can somehow really credibly sing, you know, soul music like Daryl Hall or Steve Winwood or there was another one I think Scott you might have you might have been the one that mentioned it to me um when we were talking about this on uh Twitter the other day. I can't remember his name. Um so that's impressive to us, but it's also impressive when you find people who are literally taking on a genre that is almost universally associated you know either with like guys with really long hair who like have tons of tattoos and live in la like guns and roses or you know they're they're dorks like rush you know <laughs> because that's basically <laughs> the kind of combo of sound that get that living color got on a lot of these albums and it, in a way actually reminds me of another band that i loved and this is my washington dc pride speaking i have to say it's a band called bad brains and i know living color were probably fans of bad brains i think they even covered some of their songs in concert. But Bad Brains were a a group of musicians from the D.C. area uh, who were also all African-American who listened to all these punk guys doing like hardcore and speedcore stuff like some of what we talked about on our Husker Du episode. And they said to themselves, you know, we can do that better than any of them. We have the chops. We have the talent. And uh, they could. (laughs) So you have those early Bad Brains records, which are just some of the most amazing punk and hardcore music you will 
ever hear. And yet they were so diverse too because then they started bringing in reggae sounds. They started bringing in all sorts of other sort of R&B or funk influences. They could do what they wanted. And that is what Living Color is so wonderful for us because they're not just like a hard rock band. You're not going to listen to this. It's not Warrant, okay? I'm just trying to think of like the most disposable <laughs> 90s rock act that I can of. And I think Warrant with, with like She's My Cherry Pie, that one is sort of like my go-to here, all right? No, Living Color could play in so many different genres. was Vernon Reed. Vernon Reed is a guitarist who, as Steve said, you know, I don't know where he ranks in my like top 10, top 20 listings, but he is in there because he's constantly interesting. And he also has this wonderful ability to get an engaging and just absolute kind of almost like candy-like guitar tone, something a guitar tone that I always wanted to hear from an era where if you go back and you listen to the rest of music that was made in the late 80s and the early 90s, it is some dire-ass stuff. It's stuff that just the production ticks don't hold up. Every now and then on a Living Colors uh, song, I'll listen to like the drum sound and I'll think, mm, mm. okay. Mm-hmm. Drumming is good. The quote, the actual playing is fine by Calhoun. That's not a problem. But uh, you know, the drum sound is just a little bit canned late eighties. It, it's it's the spawn of Phil Collins and the whole gated reverb boom 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 thing, right? But beyond that, the stuff doesn't age and it still sounds so good. And the thing about the band is that they were huge in their first album. Their second album didn't sell nearly as well, but it was it's also very well regarded. But these days they've basically become forgotten. Uh, and there's no excuse for that because if you go back to their first three albums, they broke up and then they reunited like a decade later afterwards. And we'll talk about the reunion albums here as well. But like, you know, those first three records and the, the EPs and there's some live material that they did from that era, that stuff hasn't aged a bit. And in particular, there are songs from Vivid and, you know, from Time's Up and from Stain that I will just hand to anybody and say this is some of the best guitar music that was done during that era. Forget Slash, you know, forget Dave Mustaine, forget, you know, Metallica even. These guys these guys played better hard rock metal from that era, from the late 80s and early 90s, than Metallica was doing, and that's for damn sure.
So I'm really looking forward to talking about this band, and it's just a lot of fun to uh, sort of reacquaint people or acquaint people for the first time with a group that either you know they'd forgotten about or they never really knew too much about in the first place. And briefly, I'm largely in the acquainted category. Uh, Living Color is not a band I was all that intimately familiar with leading up to uh, the episode. Uh, I knew the story a bit. I, I knew a handful of songs and Cult of Personality, of course. Uh, but certainly not uh, the album tracks, and, and I don't think I've ever had owned uh, an album from Living Color. So hearing all this for the first time, um, this is really great music, and there's there's one album in particular we'll talk about that I just think is, is, is really outstanding. And, you know, part there, I'm sure there are a number of reasons why uh, they're not quite as, as big today or don't have the following today. Uh, and part of it is, you know, that era, that they, they sort of just hammocked in, you know, uh, Vivid was, what, 88, and they were essentially done releasing albums in that first uh, era by 1993. And, uh, you know, the, the, there are radio stations that are going to play music through about the mid-80s, and there are radio stations that are going to play alt-rock from the 90s, and that little, like, carryover era just kind of fell between lost. the cracks yeah. yeah there just aren't a lot of places that are going to pick up a living color record and play uh, deep tracks or some of the you know less successful singles they're just not out there and uh you know th- they were gone for about a, a decade or so in between albums and, and the, the last three albums they made there's a, a large amount of time in between those as well so for various reasons they just sort of fallen through a bit and you know that's where we come in and, and catch them Musically, as Steve mentioned, all these guys are supremely talented. Uh, Vernon Reed on, on guitar, I listened to a lot of, uh, I listened to four albums yesterday on the way uh, to drive out to Grand Rapids and back. Um, I, I don't know if it's just because he's in the news and I've been listening to him a lot. I hear a lot of Eddie Van Halen in, uh, in, in Vernon Reed's playing, uh, which is, of course, a, a compliment. I think he's just an outstanding guitar player. And, and Jeff mentioned earlier the vocals, um, with uh, with uh, just a couple exceptions that we'll get to. Uh, I think Glover's vocals are just outstanding, uh, hitting the high and the low and being expressive uh, through these lyrics, which especially... They're almost comically good. Yeah. Like, he, he, he hits all... He's a beautiful singer, but he can also pull off kind of like, you know, the so hard powerful. rock credibility. He's yeah. got the grit in his voice. Um, there's nothing about him that sounds like he's he's doing one of those sort of clownish, what you know, stereotypical cock rock moves right, or anything right. like that. And he's dramatic without being sort of like poncy or like, you know, over dramatic or anything like that. It's uh, it's a remarkable trick what Corey Glover does with his voice. And these songs are very well done. I mean, they're very well put together. They're very well 
thought through and and arranged, uh, especially again during that first three album era. And it's not a static band either. Each of these albums have a have a slightly different feel. Uh, there's a lot of different genres that actually come through at different points in their career and sometimes at different points on these individual albums. Uh, but look forward to, again, as Jeff said, introducing or, or, or reintroducing people to a lot of this music. Uh, setting things up into the debut album, Vivid, who wants, to, who wants to do that? I could do the short version unless, you know, if Steve, you, you, you feel strongly about this, you're welcome to as well. But this is usually my role on the show. No, uh, all good. You go first. All right. Well, I mean, okay, this is a band that I think initially formed kind of as like one of these we're gigging in our loft propositions in New York, New York City. And Vernon Reed actually is, I think he was born in somewhere in England. I don't know. Maybe it was London. I'm not sure. And that's the reason that the band's name has the U <laughs> instead of, you know, the, the, the normal American spelling for color. Uh, I think that was kind of a tribute to his, his, his British origins. But, you know, he moved, he moved to America when he was a kid. He was raised in Brooklyn. So this is actually kind of like, you know, sort of think of Talking Heads in its own way. It's like a Brooklyn art band, right? And, you know, they got a lot. He was actually a jazz guy. That's the thing you need to know about Reed. He was a jazz guitarist originally. He'd been playing on the scene, doing lots of, you know, stuff with like some of these these pickup bands and you know trios and like you know playing clubs. Um, but for whatever reason, he said, you know what, it'd be more interesting as an experiment instead of playing jazz. Like I'm going to try to play something a little heavier, a little more hard rock. And it was clear that his interests weren't just with you know the jazz or r&b and soul stuff he was clearly listening to prog rock he was clearly listening to like andy summers of the police or robert fripp or uh alex lifeson for that matter on rush um and so he just and also like all of the the metal bands that were starting to become big you know this is the 1984 is when they formed they didn't really become like living color as you know them until like 86 87 or something like that and this is, of course, during the era where Appetite for Destruction makes a big detonating a pact, you know, and appears on the scene, uh, and you know, hair metal takes off. And this is this is, of course, you know, as Scott pointed out, this is the reason why people don't play this era so much anymore because <laughs> it's all sort of vaguely embarrassing. People don't like to remind themselves about how much everyone loved Skid Row, that debut album Skid Row by Skid Row. I, I love that record, man. My brother. In life. Yes. We are the youth gone wild, man. That was so embarrassing these days. But, man, we loved it as kids. Uh, he listened to that stuff. And, and again, he, he just was like he had more interesting ideas, but he thought it's an interesting genre to work with. So he put together the band. You know, he got, he got Corey Glover uh, he got uh, on vocals. He got Mus Gillings. And then he got Will Calhoun, uh, who I think was also like um, – he was like a conservatory student, I believe, something like yeah, that. Per- so was, he was Berkeley College of Music. I mean, he was legit – yeah, it was legit, legit chops. And of course, you hear this. Everybody in this band, you know, from the vocalist to the instrumentalists, can do their job and then some. And they finally, you know, I think they probably get a lot of buzz because, you know, if you're a hip band in Brooklyn and you're also, again, as I, as I noted in my introduction, doing kind of a counterintuitive play, like you know, he's, you know, four African American dudes and they're playing heavy metal and hard rock and they're doing it better than all those other like skanky white guys with the tats you know, like all of a sudden people are going to be really interested in what you have to do and what you have to say so they got a contract with epic and they recorded their debut album it was i think in 1987 they put it together think about this this is 87 this is still like in the sort of the prehistory even of like the hair metal hard rock era um 
In 87, they record this album. I think it gets released in early 88. And the name of that album is Vivid. And it is one of, it has every now and then, as I said, I'll hear like a drum sound, not playing, but a sound. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty 80s. You know, it can't be helped, right? But for the most part, this thing hasn't aged a day. And there's so much about it that I love. I think it is. Um, they're, they have other albums that I think are also nearly as good, but I still think this is their most consistent one. This is one of the better debut albums of all time. vivid is for those you know for those of us who were in that high school group jeff hit one thing perfectly which is what was perceived as heavy metal at that time was like bon jovi's new jersey and right skid row and dirty rotten stinky filthy rich warrant and all that and then here comes this band and the sound from right away the sound was just different this was not something you would play at a party this was something you sat down and you listened to and then when you see the video and the cult personality video is ubiquitous. And, of course, it's the first thing a lot of people saw. And, yes, there's no doubt one of the visceral things is this is an African-American band doing this. Unless you were familiar with Bad Brains or unless you were familiar with some of the, the younger black rock acts that Vernon Reed helped cultivate, you'd never seen this before. And it just rocks so hard from the start that that's it, the very first song you ever hear by them. Track one of their first album is Cult Personality. But then you go buy the album because you've seen the video and you just get a feel right away for how gifted and how versatile this band is. The very next song, which actually I think is the weakest song on the album, is I Want to Know, which is just a very standard. It's the simplest. Yeah. It's the rock. It's like the, the standard love rock song, right? But then you get Middleman, which I don't know if you guys know this, but Middleman actually, Corey Glover said in a video later, was a suicide note he had written earlier in his life that he turned into a song and its intensity is just unreal. And you just start going through the album and you've got tracks that are kind of lighthearted and comedic and like glamor boys. You've got songs that are just viciously hard hitting like middleman. And then you get a song like broken hearts, which has a bass solo in it and a guitar solo and this really appealing tempo to it. That is so different than anything else.
Well, okay, here's the thing about that Talking Heads cover. I actually think that's my least favorite song on the album. And the funny thing about it is that I, I was familiar with Living Color long before I became a Talking Heads fanatic. I, I got into Talking Heads. Like, I, I don't think I even, like, I think I saw the Once in a Lifetime video a couple years after I heard Vivid. So uh, I, you know, heard this song, Memories Can't Wait. Um, and I didn't had I had no idea that it was Talking Heads. It just said like who was accredited to David Byrne, Jerry Harrison, you know. Like I'm just like whatever. All right, this is an interesting song. It's not by the band. I didn't know it was Talking Heads. And then I went and I heard the Talking Heads version. I think it's superior. I think the problem I have with Memories Can't Wait as a cover is that it takes a lot of chances. But I think they're just too discursive. A lot of the the guitar noise on it doesn't quite work and the things about it that make it still like adequate and listenable are just the inherent virtues of the song like that's a great chorus you know mm-hmm. there's a party mm-hmm. in my mind that's never gonna be bad right but this is they did a lot of covers living color was like really actually we'll talk about this on, on the ep that comes up later they were like really smart in their choice of covers did a lot of really interesting stuff i think this is actually the weakest one that they have even though i know it's a fan favorite the uh this is vivid is i would say their most accessible album which is one of the reasons it sold two million i'm sure i'm not sure it's their best it's very very good i mean mick jagger loved these guys that's why they opened for the stones he produces two tracks on this record and i think produced their their demo as well it is really hard to pin down a band like living color when you're talking about genre i mean there's there's hard rock uh there is you know elements of jazz and funk and soul uh, this is probably the one that I, I'd say is closest to like has that real funk rock sound with, with the bass really up front in the mix. I, I think a little of Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, when I listened to, to Vivid, that, that sort of mix. But solid melodies, really good lyrics. Um, Steve just mentioned a word that I think describes it really well, which is intensity. Like this living color is intense. That they, they their playing is intense. Their lyrics are intense. It's an experience, one that I have not had to see them live. Uh, Steve will talk a bit about that later. Uh, but I can imagine how intense their live shows are. They really go all out. And, and this first album has a lot of highlights. Uh, before the highlights, one thing Jeff mentioned that I'll echo is, yeah, there are a few places where I think the drum sound is that big cavernous, 80s drum sound and it's not perfect I, I don't like the drum sound on like desperate people on broken hearts which steve mentioned it's kind of this weird uh weird mix with this tender guitar and this walloping echoey drum sound that i think just uh, takes a little away from the track but um you know a song like you know which way to america probably is my favorite song on the album maybe i mean cult of personality is so good of course but which way to america is the last track it's one of the two that, that's produced by mick jagger here 
and boy, there's this thumping, funky bass, really aggressive uh, vocal delivery. The shredding guitar from Vernon Reed, the, the, the lyrics talking about sort of the, the promises and the realities of the American dream. And this is this is a song that gets harder as it goes on. Everything mm-hmm. is more intense as you get to minute two, minute three, minute four. They're putting everything into this performance of Which Way to America. I love uh, the way it closes the album with that really intense performance. Middleman's a really good one, driven by, again, just a really funky bass line. Uh, machine gun guitar riffs from Vernon Reed. He's, of course, all over the place. If I have one criticism about this, I actually wish that Reed's guitar uh, tone and guitar parts were sometimes a little thicker in places, a little a little more, uh, uh, more up front in the mix at a few places on some of these songs. Um, and what I know Jeff's going to talk about here, I'll, I'll also mention because it's just a tremendous song. You know, open letter to, to a landlord. Um, it's a fantastic, fantastic melody in the chorus. And, and lyrically, uh, you know, the, the chorus, you can tear a building down, but you can't erase a memory. There's that verse where there was a fire and, and children died. Uh, I mean, very serious stuff, which they deal with all over the place on Vivid and, and especially the next album, too. Uh, it's really affecting to listen to how powerful it is to match those lyrics with the intensity of these performances on Vivid. I think I think for that for that song they actually got like a local poet uh, to write the lyrics. I think Reed had the music, and then he took it to uh, some woman who in the Brooklyn scene who was a, who was a poet, and she came up with that. And and I have to say this is actually going to be a kind of a recurring theme with Living Color is that I'm hugely impressed at how they can write or sing and this is i think a lot of ways this is down at glover uh, sing political lyrics and not sound cheesy or dumb uh that lyric i think is actually you know really powerful it's so well done you you, you had the, you already mentioned the chorus guy you can tear a building down you can't make erase a memory but at the end you know like when, when Corey glover is singing you gotta fight you gotta fight for your neighborhood like dude this is like what is it it's an it's obviously some sort of like anti-gentrification anthem in some ways, mm-hmm. but also it feels like it was, you know, as I joked on Twitter just today, I said, I, whenever I hear this song in my mind, I have a mental subtitle. I call it the Ballad of Robert Moses. Uh, it was, of course, the, the New York, you know, power broker who uh, like, would like tear down entire neighborhoods of, of what he called slums or low-income housing so they could build highways and things like that. And it's the same kind of a vibe there, too. Uh, that core is so musically immense and, and the way Glover sings those lyrics it is 
I'm gonna just you know, tip my hand right now. I think this is actually my single favorite Living Color song of all time. This is my It's a little bit outside what I would say, like, you know, their normal wheelhouse in terms of like these, you know, like really awesome, devastating hard rock anthems. But that's, this is sort of their, their, their requisite ballad. But that's it's, the thing. It, it, rock, it rocks pretty hard, but there's, it's a ballad. There's slow moments. Uh, there's usually one or maybe two an album where they take their foot off the gas a little bit and, and open letter is, right. is one here. They almost all work. They almost all They're, work really, really well. And that's, I think, a tribute to Reed. He's not only just like a great technician, he's tasteful. There are so many great technicians on guitar. I think they want the Steve Vise or the Ying V. Malmsteins <laughs> yeah. who can play, play a mile a minute, right? But like they have no taste. If you listen to their stuff, it's just over self indulgent, like masturbation is what it is. It's just, you know, they're spooging all over their fretboards. Uh, Vernon Reed never once does that. Even sometimes where I think he, you know, he puts a foot wrong and I'm not really into like what it is he's playing. I never get that feeling of sort of self-indulgence on these these classic albums. And I guess, you know, I, somebody has to mention Cult of Personality. Let it be me. All right. And, and the irony of this song is that I actually I honestly like the middle eight even more than the riff. <laughs> the riff is yeah. obviously epic and it's legendary. It's pretty clearly like a repurposed Led Zeppelin idea. It's very you guys know the song Custard Pie, right? This is kind of like that, you know, put through a blender. Same kind of basic idea. But I actually find that the Call of Personality riff to be far more satisfying than the Zepp song for some reason. I think something about the crackling clarity of the way Reed plays that guitar, the way it's produced, put on tape, it owes something to the sharpness of like early 80s prog, art rock, new wave, mutation era. You know, bands, I'm thinking of like a Trevor Rabin era, yes. <laughs> you know, like not just the blues rock stuff of Page.
what can you say about the lyrics? I know, I know that Vernon Reed was talking about his conceit here, which is a smart conceit. He's talking about how all historically great, I use that phrase in quotes with emphasis on sort of the ambivalent moral value of that particular locution, what it means to be historically great. It doesn't mean you're a great person or even something anyone should admire, but all those people who've become like, you know, huge in history had a cult of personality built around them. But of course, the secondary joke on that song is that it could have just as easily applied to rock stars. Hmm. You know, like, you know, Corey Glover, when he sings that, you know, he, you almost think that he's not just talking about like, you know, well, who are the guys who get name checked? Everyone from Gandhi to Mussolini to Stalin. JFK, yeah. Stalin and all that. Right. But he could also just be singing about like, here, here's the rock star on stage, you know, prancing under the spotlight and you guys are mesmerized by him and you think you love him and you're in love with him. It's a double, it works so well on two levels that it's there's no no surprise to me that it was like their big breakout song i i gotta add something i feel remiss if i don't yeah and that is that the thing that makes vivid so amazing is here's this band we we've all you know discussed the elephant room here's this black rock band in the 80s which just simply was not considered marketable right and here they are and they don't shy away from it if you go look mm-hmm. through the songs you guys brought up open letter Open Letter is a song about gentrification and about railing against it. Then you've got Desperate People, which is about drug abuse. Mm -hmm. Which Way to America is about the dichotomy between the people living out in the suburbs who think life is dandy and their realized existence where they were. And so you put, and Funny Vibe is straight out about racism. They they get Chuck D on that. And so they get Public Enemy. (laughs) Yeah. So they did not. You know, they didn't shy away from that. They didn't think, oh, we'll be so much marketable if we just play basically the, you know, the Warrant album in our own, you know, tone. They went for it. And it worked because for a lot of people, that's what drew them to the band was that social consciousness. But for even the ones that maybe didn't share their social outlook, the music was so damned good you couldn't turn away from it either way. No, I'm not going to hurt you. what's compelling they were just they were who they were they didn't play it up to like you get some hype Ooh, here we are we're we're subverting expectations and they didn't dial it down because as you said steve oh we want to be marketable we want to you know get more mtv airplay they were just who they were and it's the honesty that comes through on all these songs and i think that kind of goes to what i was saying earlier about why i'm so surprised that living color unlike so many other like you know socially aware bands that try to see you use political lyrics and things like that don't make it with me one bit and they Mm -hmm. you know they just kind of 
feel clunky and clangy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, these guys pull it off. Funny Vibe is hilarious, by the way, for me, because you know, here's a, here's a comparison I wouldn't even have been able to properly make at the beginning of the year for reasons that fans of the podcast will know well. But the opening to that song, this is the song, mind you, that has you know Flavor Flav and Chuck D. This is the one that has like Public Enemy, you know, rapping and talking on it. But the opening of that song, that's straight Rush. That is totally moving pictures era rush. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, after like the, this is weird chopsmanship and shredding, it goes into a funk groove. And it doesn't seem forced in any way. It, it just sort of has a natural flow. And, and, and there's something about the way that the band plays and works that you fall into that groove and you accept it. You are you're, you're like, all right, you know what? what your trip is i'm not sure what it is and where it's going or why it's going where it's going but i'm taking the ticket i'm buying the ticket and i'm going to take the ride and that's what i love about you know the songs on these early albums because they 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 never usually have just one mode they're always trying something different in almost every one of their songs, the, Reed, you can just hear how much of a songwriter he was. And it isn't just him, by the way. Everybody starts writing songs, certainly yeah. around the second album. Uh, but none of them are content to uh, just sort of like, you know, here's a verse and here's a chorus, simple stuff. You don't really get that from Living Color songs on these first three albums. You get everybody just trying to throw in. And then one of my personal jokes about this band is that I have sometimes find that I, their middle eights are even better than their verses and choruses. Because when they throw in that contrasting section, as we'll see in a couple songs I'm going to talk about later, it just blows my mind. It's like, wow, that's the best part of the entire album. I wanted that to be the entire song. I think the one last thing I want to point out is that, that they were pretty cocky because they actually had a theme song on this record, which is called What's Your <laughs> favorite what's your favorite color and even mm-hmm. subtitle like theme song but the best thing about it is it is basically just a prince jam right yeah you know, the, or like p-funk something like that i think it sounds more like prince to me and if you've heard like prince's like a billion outtakes where he's just like grooving on like you know like you know something it's like him probably overdubbing himself seven times because that's prince what's your favorite color baby Like it has that sort of loose and casual, funny feel. Um, I just, I just like the fact that they felt like, hey, you know what? Yeah, you know, let's make a theme song. It means that, as serious as they were and as self-possessed as they were, they also still were able to laugh at themselves by writing, yeah, here's the Living Color theme song. Uh, you know, and to be fair, it's not as good as In Living Color, <laughs> which is of course the theme song to the show In Living Color, but it's well, pretty good. Not just that, but they're not their second biggest hit ever is also on this album, and it's Glamour Boys, which is completely a comedy song. Right, and with Mick, with Mick Jagger, the ultimate Glamour Boy, singing backing vocals too. I might point out. Right, and here's the video of Corey Glover, who's a good-looking dude in a body glove, talking about I'm fierce, because <laughs> nothing's more fierce than a good-looking 23-year-old model, good-looking guy in a wetsuit. Right, so good, so damn good. It's hilarious, and again, the the 
I, you know, they'd been together. Reed had started the band in 84, but they'd been together, I think, for two years, working out concepts, you know, the kinds of things that come out in the wash when you're, you know, again, rehearsing in some loft in Brooklyn in the summer, and it's 110 degrees, and there's only one fan, and, and everything else is devoted to the amp, so everybody's sweating because the, the heat being produced is just making you melt down. That's the kind of crack musicianship that this band had cultivated over all that time working together. And at this point, they just knew who they were, and they knew who they wanted to do, which is why this album holds up so well, because it has that that quality that I often associate with uh I, I talked about this with rem's murmur where it didn't sound like a debut album it sounded like an album from a band that had been together for a decade already because it was just so confident you know they they had they knew that you know like we don't have to all come up in the mix or whatever we can hide our voices we can do what the thing that we we have is our conceit this is like that living colors vivid is like that and that this band actually feels completely fully formed it's a debut album but it doesn't have the uncertainty or the hesitancy of a debut album and that's the greatest tribute that i can ever pay to it this the album did extremely well and as i mentioned they sold about two million copies or so so yes they get a follow-up of course and that's uh, two years later in 1990 and it's an album called times up and i gotta tell you this this is their best album in my opinion. I know. <laughs> Who'd have thought? This is the one that no one talks about. And it's even better. It did win a Grammy, so they, they got they got something right. Uh, the Grammy Awards did. It won, I think, Best Hard Rock Performance. This is an incredible album for so many reasons. Um, I think back to our, our uh, Cracker episode with Dave Lowry, and, you know, after Kerosene Hat sold, you know, a couple million copies in low, uh, the label essentially gave them carte blanche on the next record. They made the Golden Age, and, uh, you know, Lowry's like, well, we wanted to try all this stuff, and it was the only time we'd ever get a chance to do it because we actually sold sold some records. And Time's Up has a similar, um, not a feel, but it has a similar vibe to it in that there is so much on this record, right? There are guest stars, there are guest vocalists, uh, there are little short commentary tracks, which yeah. actually all three of them I love. <laughs> so. and, 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 and it it works. It all works. They threw the kitchen sink at it, essentially. They're not compromising in any way. You know, this is, I, I, I would say, you know, even more political than the first album and even, even deeper uh, look into sort of the lives and the stories that they want to tell. They didn't, they're not compromising there. It's all out on the lyrics, on the music. It's, it's sort of a statement uh, record in a, in a lot of ways. And I think they, they got the chance to make the exact album they wanted to make, and they just pulled it off. They really pulled it off. I was so blown away uh, by, by Time's Up, almost literally from start to finish. There might be one or two tracks I quibble with uh, a, a tiny bit. But some of the best music on this record is right at the end. Some of the best music on this album is right at the front. There's uh, there's opportunities to have a little fun. There's opportunities to to inject a little more funk. There's opportunities to have a little more, uh, not quite, you know, kind of uh, hardcore, but close. It's all on Time's Up, and it all makes for a fantastic record. Oh, 
Yeah, you know, the thing about Time's Up to me, and it was, the, you know, now that I'm a fan of the band after the first album, I come back for the second album, is it's sequenced perfectly. It starts out with this intensity, Time's Up, then you get this little spoken word track, which is a bunch of statements about Africa and the relationship to music, and it leads into Pride. And Pride is just one of those songs that pins you to the wall at the beginning. And to go to something that Jeff mentioned earlier, Pride is written by Will Calhoun. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is something else. It is a political statement, but it's also just musically, sonically. And I didn't know it at the time. I had first heard it over a year earlier because when they played at the L.A. Coliseum, the one song that wasn't on Vivid that they played in their set, they said, we're trying something new here. And they launched into Pride, and it just it blew the it blew the speakers off the stage. It's that powerful. Don't ask me why I play this music, The best thing about it, and then it also has such variety too, because it's a huge, long power rocker, and then all of a sudden, right at the end, it turns into like the the, the last guitar notes on that song are like Steve Howe on a Yes album, <laughs> like you know, at the end of Going for the One or something like that. Oh, like, oh, oh yeah, those 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 pedaled fucking notes fading away into the distance. It's like the it's so interesting how the effortless fusion of like hard rock, soul, prog, all these things, these political themes, it, it was actually something that hadn't been done. And the thing about like the chorus on pride, which is history is a line that they teach you in school. Like that's, I, I don't know, at least for me, like that's not the quite the, the line that you want to be singing out loud, singing along. And yet you can't <laughs> help it because the hook is so massive. And all of a sudden history is a lie that they teach you in school. Uh, you, you just I'm a go history along teacher, it. and I sing along to yeah. that. <laughs> but the, the <laughs> well, hook is so uh, massive. <laughs> you compromise. It's a self-loathing moment, I guarantee it, but... <laughs> it's hilarious. Steve, I interrupted you. I couldn't help it. Uh, no, I'm no, sorry. no. You're good. And so the, this powerful song about, you know, the, the that they're talking about their culture, and then the very next song is Love Rears Its Ugly Head, which is a... You know, it just shows again. I know it's a word I've used before, but the versatility, my God, you can go from pride to lovers, it's ugly head, and it doesn't seem strange and it doesn't seem ridiculous. And then they go from lovers, it's ugly head to new Jack theme, which is this very dark song about being a drug dealer. And mm -hmm. again, it all somehow makes sense. And then you get to the end and it ends on kind of an uplifting note. You have fight the fight, solace of you, which I, uh, I can't say enough good things about. And then it ends with this is the life, which is this very practical realistic the, the chorus at the end is that the music's raising up this is the life you have you know make the most of what you have uh, it's just the whole sequence of the album is just so beautifully done
I think at this moment I want to take uh, the time to uh, mention a contribution from a friend of ours, friend of the show, Will Collier, um, who is a guy who actually wrote in to talk about our Rush show. Uh, and the reason I want to want to mention this here is because you know, we're talking about how Living Color came out of nowhere, and then they followed it up with this great album. This great album that I think you know it, it didn't sell nearly as well, and and you know everybody who remembers the band remembers Vivid. They don't remember this, but but what Will's story I think is is a great one that kind of explains why he was you know a lifelong fan and, and i'm going to just read what he wrote for us he says you know in the fall of 1988 for reasons that i don't pretend to understand mtv picked auburn university in alabama of all places as a stop on their new music assault tour to be filmed for broadcast um and an all but unknown new york act named living color was opening at the last minute, uh, MTV added uh, one of their Flavor of the Month bands, the Sugar Cubes, as the headliner, um, which was annoying because I think apparently they were not very good live. Uh, <laughs> but the show was free, and I was going to be on MTV if I went, and that's really all you needed to know if you were in a college kid in 1988. The venue was packed, of course, because it was MTV. Think of a couple of thousand middle-class white kids from Alabama and Georgia and Florida, none of whom had any idea what they were in for. Vivid had been released a few months before, but Cult of Personality hadn't hit quite yet. They couldn't have been, been maybe more than a dozen people at that show who had any idea who Living Color was when they went on stage. And that band had the crowd in the palms of their hands by the third song. It was astonishing. The only thing I've ever seen like that reaction was Metallica set at the Monsters of Rock tour earlier that year. The music was great. Corey Glover oozed charisma, and the band connected with the audience almost instantly. That set has taken on legendary status in the years since. It's one of those landmarks of the Auburn music scene, getting mentioned with like long-ago concerts from the Rolling Stones and Elvis Presley. I went out and I bought Vivid the next day, and I've been a lifelong fan ever since. That, to me, explains the kineticism of Time's Up because the energy that they carried from that debut into this record uh, is what carried them through. And I think sometimes some of the songs, I don't know, I'm not actually, believe it or not, a huge fan of, of the opening track, which is, you know, Time's Up. I don't know if I really like that one a lot. I think it's kind of like it, it strives for too much to be like you know, sort of you know, an abrasive hard rock anthem. But this is one of those weird songs where you, you expect albums to sort of weaken as they go along, especially this is like a long album. This is over 55 minutes, I believe. It's a lengthy disc. The CD age, as I've constantly mentioned, is the doom of most bands. But this is the opposite, where everything that comes builds upon itself and gets better and better and better and better. Love Rears It's Ugly Head, as Steve mentioned, is great, but honestly, I'm always going to be a sucker for that single remix, what is the Soul Power remix. It's on the that's, greatest hits. Yeah, what are you that's saying? It. That's it. That's the title of it. It's amazing. It's absolutely that's, amazing. That's, it's so much better. It's so much better. It has. It, 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 it almost gets a little dreamy. It's just, you know, sometimes remixes can be good things. All right. I love that song in its remix version. I always thought that 
But it's somewhere around the middle of this album where it just becomes amazing. There's a song on here called Elvis is Dead, which I adore, which is clearly a response to Fight the Power by Chuck D. Or by, well, it was Public Enemy, but you know, Chuck D had that famous lyric where you know, Elvis was a hero to most, but he you know, never meant shit to me. You know, racist, you denounced him for his racism and such. Uh, uh, instead, you know, uh, Vernon Reed responds to that, and he clearly name-checks the song. He actually talks about it in the lyric, but he takes it from a completely different perspective. It's almost kind of a sequel to Cult of Personality, where he says, like, mm -hmm. you know, there's the tabloid scream, you know, Elvis at the shopping mall. You know, that's the kind of talk that makes my stomach crawl. And he just, you know, has this horrible image of, like, you know, the, the zombie Elvis in the jumpsuit, mm -hmm. you know, rotting Elvis shopping for fresh fruit. You can't because Elvis is dead. And he talks about, like, you know, how the cult of personality can actually entomb somebody. You know, he died alone on the toilet, basically. He dwells forever in the Heartbreak Hotel. Yo, Corey, man. Yeah, man, what's up? I saw Elvis the other day. Get out of here, man! more interesting take on sort of the cult of personality than I think even the original song and it's it comes right at the middle of this album right where you're expecting the weakest stuff to be stashed that's where they put the best stuff because actually I think the best song on this album for me at least is type the one that comes right after it it's a really long song but it has that killer chorus that I've just loved since I was young. So we are the children of concrete and steel. Mm. This is the place where the truth is concealed. This is the time where the lie is revealed. Everything is possible, but nothing is real. That is a monster chorus. We are the children of concrete and steel.
again, everything from there on basically just becomes glorious. There's that neo psychedelia song. Oh, was it? It, it's it's a it's a Glover song actually, under the cover of darkness. And then you know there's the solace of you, which I know Steve mentioned, but that's like a summer night glow. Like uh, imagine sitting by like you know one of those warm old fashioned light bulbs with the with the yellow light <laughs> that's just glowing and the flies are buzzing around it. That's what the electric guitar sounds like on that song. And yeah, this is the life. I completely agree. It's it's, it's a fantastic strong ending. You know, it, you know, talking about how in, in another life no one ever hurts you, but this is the life that you live in here. So you can dream or you can live in the life that you have. This is an album that I'm not sure I would say it's as good as Vivid, but my god, it is just trading blows in, in terms of how good it is. You know, I can completely understand why Scott thinks differently. Uh, this is the life might be my favorite living color song. You guys have both praised it. It's the last track on Time's Up, and it's just outstanding. Jeff talked about what it is lyrically, you know that that, that, that almost call and response chorus, you know, in another life, and then uh, a little different tone uh, on the response to that. It's it's a little it's a little darker, right, than the rest of the album. It sort of portends the next album in a in a way. Um, I think it's like six and a half minutes, but it earns all of that time and is just a, a, a way to sort of sum up and, and, and shut down Time's Up. Reed's guitar playing is, of course, outstanding throughout um, Information Overload. It's incredible because the beginning of the song is, I don't know, 15 seconds worth of Vernon Reed, you know, guitar trickery, uh, in essence. And uh, if you listen, it sounds like a modem. It sounds like a modem connecting, you know, back in the America Online days. Uh, they could have had no idea about it. It's 1990, right? They, they, they couldn't have been mimicking that. When you have a song about information overload and, and you know, lyrically, it's exactly what it says in the, in the title and you sort of tie it into what would be coming not that far away with this this guitar trickery and the way he can make his his instrument sound at the beginning of, the beginning of that track. It's just incredible. Uh, and you guys have really hit on, uh, as I look through my notes, essentially everything else I was going to say or had to say about Time's Up. Uh, it is strong. From front to back, uh, it is strong in the middle. Uh, some of the very best songs are at the end. I think Steve still wanted to talk a little about Solace of You, so I'll let him do that now. Well, yeah. I, I mean, there's so much to this song. It, 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 to me, it, it has such a... It, it's such an uplifting song, which you're right. With This Is The Life being sort of as dark as it was, the two pairing off each other is just so perfect that they're put next to each other because Solace of You 
you know, the lyrics, they can hurt me, jail my body, but I'll still be free because I have the solace of you. And then the chorus now, this again, sometimes your love of music is practical. Hey, that guitar bit is great. Or, hey, this bass player is amazing. But sometimes it's personal. And you got to understand, when this album came out, I was a very confused going to be a senior in high school. And the chorus to Solace of You, for those who are unfamiliar with the song, is gotta go inside back, back where it started, back to the beginning, because that's where my heart is. And confused high school senior Steve, really, that resonated <laughs> with his little head. So that song has always been a favorite for that reason. It was like a statement of personal philosophy. I, I needed to find that someone who would be the solace for me. And well, that worked out eventually, thankfully, but it's just as an and musically, like you said, Jeff, with the guitar, it's just the riffing over it, just so simple, so beautiful. And everything works. The percussion works. The bass riff, even though it's really simple. Muzz Skillings had such a skill mm -hmm. for taking something and 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 he's not being put out front, except on the one track he did a complete bass solo of, which is one of those one minute interludes. Right. But it's there. You can feel it and everything fits. It's just, oh, it's an amazing song. Gotta go inside, back where it started, back to the beginning, cause that's where my heart is. Gotta go inside, back where it started, back to the beginning, cause that's where my heart is. And all the grouting on this album works too. You know, I think of grouting or like, you know, like the caulking on between, you know, bricks and mm -hmm. concrete, the way you assemble, you know, a wall, right? Like you have these, these small, like short tracks, like history lesson. You mentioned that actually already, Steve. We're talking about like the history of Africa and music mm -hmm. or, um, uh, you know, fight the, or ology. Oh, I love ology. That is the, that is the skillings one that you're talking about. Um, or, uh, you know, like tag team partners. What was it? Is the, it's the some... Dougie Fresh. It's the Dougie Fresh. Right. it's good it's really good and i'm just saying that these tracks like might seem like they're you know pointless like these little squibs right a you know, minute long this that or the other thing but they all work and the thing about the album for an album by a band that's you know basic mode despite the fact that they were so versatile it was still kind of like hard rock metal alt metal i guess whatever you want to call it um is it you have such light relief that the album never feels sort of ponderous. It's 55 minutes long, I think. Something like that. It's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, as I said, every album could stand to be have 20 minutes removed for it, unless it's selling England by the pound, in my opinion. But, like, uh, you know, this album does not really sag uh, under the weight of its length in any way because it's so interestingly sequenced where all these little bits just come in and, you know, like, you know, you have the big long funk or you know, some R&B workout with Love Rears It's Ugly Heart and then you have New Jack theme all of a sudden we're talking about slinging drugs you know in uh, Detroit or New York I'm not sure where it is but it's like it's it's a dark dark song you never get 
um, repetition in a way that, honestly, I, you know, in I, my opinion at least, they would start to do in their reunion years. Um, this the creativity is so strong here, and I think it actually does hold up uh, through their next album as well. But before we get to that next album, first of all, I want to make sure. Does anybody have anything left that they would like to say about Times Up before I move on? I would want to make one more comment, and that yes, is, please. it comes back again to being true to themselves, but also in a way that still resonates to this day. You take a song like Someone Like You, mm-hmm. which was a Muzz Skilling song. The middle, the middle verse of that song is about police brutality. Right. And I don't, know, I don't know enough about Skillings, to be honest with you, to know if this was truly autobiographical. But he's talking about a police shooting involving his brother, who was a medical student. You know, I mean, that could have been written in June of 2020, not the spring of 1990. Right. Uh, and, and, they di- and they don't compromise on it at all, which is just, again, it's an awfully bold move, especially when the reigning music of the time was either really god-awful power ballads or really goofy hair metal. Cherry Pie was 1990. I mean, that's exactly yeah. the kind of... That was the era, and they they refused to play that game. I think that's why they were probably always fated to sort of like just bubble under you know they're never, never going to be like you know a world conquering top you know number one album rock band because they didn't compromise they probably could have if they wanted to i don't have no i have no doubt in my mind but with those four guys there's no question that if they wanted to sell out like sell the hell out they could have done it all right they, they could have done it and they could have made number one but they just didn't care to do it and they didn't care to do it um because i don't think they really knew how to do anything else which kind of leads you to the darkness of stain which is their third album but before we get to stain i think both both steve and i and maybe scott too would really like to say a little something about this ep that they released in between called biscuits which is kind of just this little fun uh, footnote. But, man, I enjoy it. It's basically their little covers EP. But the thing about Living Colors, man, these guys were great at covers. They were really great at covers. I think they, uh, they do, like, a version of Desperate People on there. So that's, it's not all covers. But, like, they, talk, they do a James Brown song. There's an Al Green song. They do, you know, they do, again, the Talking Heads song. And then my favorite one, and you guys can talk about yours if you really care, but, man, man my favorite is Burning of the Midnight Lamp. They do the Jimi Hendrix song, Burning of the Midnight Lamp, and it is hilarious. It's actually everything that everything that bothers me about Memories Can't Wait is what I love about Burning of the Midnight Lamp. Both of them are excellent songs in their original versions, but Burning of the Midnight Lamp is just a complete, ridiculous rewrite that works. They turn it into reggae. 
they turned the song into reggae. If you, you know, everyone knows the Hendrix riff, right? Don't don't ba don 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 don. Well, now imagine that being played by Reed on like a, like a sort of a scratchy, you know, electric guitar as you hear straight up reggae beats being played in the background, and you know, Corey sings that, and the whole verse is shifted into you know that offbeat you know step of reggae time. And I gotta tell you, like. I mean, I'm not gonna, you know, say like, oh, is it better than the original? But I like it almost as much. I just think it's a really great cover, and I think I salute it for being really weird and really working. think that that one is awesome i think that the two things that come out in biscuits underscore two things about living color that i think anyone who's going to start getting into the catalog after listening to this podcast will appreciate and that is their covers and that is their live stuff because yeah. desperate people and memories can't wait are both live tracks that were recorded the year prior and then you have these three covers and my favorite of the three and scott i think you agree with me is the james brown cover talking yes. loud and saying nothing yes they have such a damn good time with that song <laughs> and they make it their own, but it works. The guitar works immaculate and you could just tell Corey Glover is having the dang time of his life singing this song. You would and too. <laughs> What's that? I said you would too. Oh, absolutely. And you've got, you know, the chorus, which for those who don't know the song, you're like a dull knife. You just ain't cutting. You're talking loud, but you ain't saying nothing. And you can see the, you can almost visually see the grin on his face as he's going through the song. It's, it's a fun, fun ride. Sheep up your bag. Don't worry about mine. My things together. And I'm doing fine. Good luck to you, Mr. Light and Wrong. And keep on singing that same old funny song. Just keep on singing that same old funny song. I mean, they had a lot of great covers during this era. Some of them didn't make it on. The, you can find them as like random bonus tracks on reissues and places like that. But they did a cover of Final Solution, which mm-hmm. uh, was by a band that and nobody except dorks like me really knows called para ubu uh great little art rock you know outfit uh from the post-punk era um 
their version is just an amazing, amazing guitar showcase for Reed. It is just basically the excuse for, you know, you, you, Glover just sings. Obviously, he does a fine job with the lyrics. But, man, it's just an excuse for Reed to blow the doors off. Just shred, 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 shred. And the song is built for it. And, and I, again, you know, I don't know how many people listen to this podcast, particularly all of the olds, you know, like me, frankly, at this point. <laughs> I'm an old, too. Uh, are familiar with the original Peri Ubu version. Um, uh, it's good. Uh, I actually think this is one where Living Color did better. I think this this is the version of a kind of kind of a, a classic, you know, you know, alternative song that I'm gonna want to ever hear. And uh, I just think it's, you know, one of the things, you know, as we talked about is, is, is why you should really get into them live and get into their, uh, you know, their covers. And I think maybe this is the point, Steve, I know that you in particular really, really love uh, Living Color Live. And I think maybe this is where you want to talk about live at CBGB. Yeah, it was a later release. But it was. Uh, but it's it was, from '89, I believe. It's an 80, right? yeah, it is. It's an '89 concert that was released on a CD in, uh, I think it was 2005 or 2006 after the reunion, uh, and it's it's a combination of their original stuff from the Vivid era plus some covers. They do the do the Bad Brains cover of Sailing On, and my gosh, it's just seeing them live is a revelation as i i said it was my first concert and when my youngest was of age i made sure it was her first concert too and it was actually the uh it was the 30 or 25th anniversary of the vivid album so they played the vivid album front to back and just the one thing that jumps out of them live besides the intensity i think that was the word scott used earlier is just the musicianship you know you see a lot of bands and you see them live and you're a little disappointed because it's a lot you, you learn the value of production when you see some bands live because you see a lot of... It, it, it ain't as good as the album in any right. way, right? It's, it's, the slippage is, is noticeable. Man, there is no slippage. And with the kind of technical stuff that like Vernon Reed plays and, and the bass work of a Doug Wimbish, because as we're going to talk about in a minute, Muzz Skillings is, is not long for this band, and, and Will Calhoun on the drums, and Corey Glover, even though he's been singing professionally now for the better part of, well, now over 30 years, he hasn't missed a whole lot live. I mean, we. I Which is, him. by the way, a miracle for some of my favorite vocalists. Man, I talk about people like you know, you know, Phil Collins or even Bono, like the, Tom York of Radiohead. People just lose it at the end, mm -hmm. but he's kept it. Man. Yeah, no, he. I <laughs> he, mean, I saw his him. voice really hasn't cracked, and I'm just stunned at that. 
and, and given the and given what he puts his voice through, just listening to the yeah. recorded versions of these things and and the range he shows, it, it's something else. And and remember, when they were on their hiatus, he was doing musical theater, so he never really went away. Um, I love, by the way, that's one of my favorite factoids. Like he, he really loved to tread the boards. You know, if if you can't play in a band, well, you know, play on stage. <laughs> Go do Jesus Christ Superstar. Super Sing some show tunes, man. Oh yeah, <laughs> why not? It, it, get, it, it's just yeah. something else that he's kept together as well as the, as he has as well as they have. I mean, well, I bet you he probably understands. Uh, unlike a lot of these rock stars who were just sort of like you know came up from nothing, he obviously had like real training. So I think he probably knows how to take better care of his voice, which I, I would, think is is a huge issue because it, it's really just about proper self care when it comes to vocal cords. And, and and a guy like Glover is is you know a pro in that respect, which thank God because he still has it. Um, I guess this takes us to the third album of the original Living Color era, and kind of like you know the close of like the great Living Color era, and that's Stain. Uh, a lot of people treat this as sort of like the dark, you know, the darker, uglier, and meaner redheaded stepchild of the Living Color discography. Uh, I think it's actually nearly as good as the first two, and again, it's one of those those records where uh, you you have to understand that the darkness. Uh, it's also leavened with a lot of weird uh, vitality and weirdness. There, there's a song on this called uh, WTFF, and, and gosh, you know, you're going to have to bleep me, Scott. Uh, it stands for What the Fuck Factor. All right, and you listen to it, and it's like Madchester. It's like straight up like New Order Madchester beat. It's hilarious that they're pulling this kind of thing off because this is like sequenced drums, like you know, if you if you're actually recording, you know, in Manchester. Uh, but for these guys, they're just playing it live, and it works. And it, it just—it's one of those 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 funny things, where I don't know how they get away with that, and I don't know how they get away with something like "Wall," which is the last song on this record. Mm-hmm. And I, how do they get away with like those direct, kind of painfully sincere lyrics without sounding chintzy? There's a magic to that. There's a bit of a sleight of hand. I think it's in part because I think I think Glover sings so beautifully with such perfect inflections. They would have it, it would sound hopelessly stilted in someone's el- someone else's mouth, you know. And, and instead, it sounds like undilutable slang truth when it comes from him. But you also have to talk for about those avant-garde guitar sounds that Reed always goes for as well. There's nothing flashy on this one, but it's just in the background. You hear that solid and unobtrusive metallic sheen. I'm always impressed by the fact that he can play Flash, and he does really enjoy just you know going balls out and playing Flash. But he also understands restraint as well. Uh, that's to me has always been the sign of a truly mature guitarist. So, what are your guys' opinions on Stain, which has a, a very dark cover? <laughs> yeah, and the tone. I mean, it's it's a it, it is absolutely a heavier album. 
and a darker album than the past two full lengths. Uh, some of the uh, some of the light more more lighthearted or fun moments are essentially stripped away. There's a few moments like "Bi," which uh, a song about bisexuality, which back in 1993 was something that probably stuck stuck out quite a bit. Now, I think it's a funny lyric. It you know, is. It's both inclusive and it's goofy. Everybody loves you when you're bi, you know? And it's got you such can, a... You get to pick from 100% of the population. <laughs> Everybody wants you when you're bi. Feeling all the girls and hmm, touching all the guys. Well, everybody loves you when you're bi. Well, a friend of a friend of a friend told me everybody's messed up with got such a funky slinky groove to it that actually works very very well um but you know there, there are some odd things here that i i don't like as much um there, there's a, a back-to-back uh mind your own business and and auslander and those are very aggressive metal almost industrial songs and mind your own business is struck me as just very odd lyrically because i mean it is again what the title says mind your own business and we come just three years after you know it's time when you have a collection of songs that essentially is welcoming the listener into perhaps another person's shoes another point of view another part of town uh you know fight the fight on that album you know we, we all fight the same fight we just get, you know we're all we have much more in common than you think and and then it, mind your own business, okay? Same thing changed a bit. Um, and so the, the, those two songs I, I don't love, um, but there are some really good ones. You know, again, "Buy" is just a really great slinky groove. "Leave It Alone" I think was the single, a single from this record. It's one of their best songs. "Leave It Alone" is great. Uh, "Ignorance" is the, okay. The thing about le- the thing about "Leave It Alone" is that again, and this is what I was you know, sort of forecasting earlier is that it's one of those songs where the contrasting middle section just mm. blows <laughs> the body of the song away. The verse and the chorus are purely adequate. They're functional. They're mediocre. But then that middle eight arrives and it just detonates almost literally every single thing else on this album out of the water. And you know I'm 
I, I guess maybe there's an interesting compositional problem here. You know, maybe an over-dependence on sort of the riffery, mm. you know, as a signature, as a way to write. But and then when he says, like, okay, well, now I have to come up with something different. And then he comes up with that middle eight on Leave It Alone. And you just wish, like, oh, cripes. You know, I wish they didn't, like, pulled a, <laughs> pulled a Tears for Fears sowing the seeds of love and made every part of the song a middle eight. Because this is so good. <laughs> It, but yeah, 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 that's that, that's a fantastic song. Uh, I mentioned earlier, similar lighter songs end up being pulled off the best. On this one, nothingness is uh, sort of that light change of pace. Man, that's good. It's good. There are these uh, crickets, uh, you know, effects brought in just to begin the song. They pop back up during the chorus. There's this really great spindly bass line. The, the bass does take a little bit more of a back seat. On this record, there's a new bassist, and, and again, those riffs are much more front and center on this sort of heavier, darker album. I like Walls. Jeff already talked uh, a little about that one. Um, but there, there, there are portions here, again, Auslander. I'm not sure I like Go Away, which is, I think, the leadoff track here. Uh, it, it's it's more inconsistent, and it, it's 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 a different it's a different sound. Um, it's a sound. This is the sound that would sort of continue into their reunion albums, which would be almost a decade away. But this is where they sort of jumped off to, to pick things back up again. Um, and, and I think there's... I actually actually noted, you know, in my notes here, I was like, oh, man, you know, going back and listening to this now, it depresses me to realize, like, this is the sound of, like, corn coming yeah. up. And like, yeah. You know, or, like, that late 90s sort of sludgy hard rock thing. Yep. I mean, then thankfully, again, as I said, right, they have that contrasting middle section. That's much more subtle, and and that that's what redeems the song. But you're right, the big opening riff. That's like that sort of heavy yeah. sludge. That uh, yeah, I'm not a fan of either. And it, the one thing that they have going for them is even with that dark uh, and sludge sludgier sort of uh, mix and performance, they still find those melodies to to, to make those songs. I want to say palatable is not quite the right word, but. They're still attractive, uh, sort of as you wipe away some of that sludge and the heaviness. There's still some some sharp melodies in a lot of these songs that sort of make them stick out. Yeah, you know, the thing about Stain is, you used a good word, which is, I, well, I think you used a word similar to this, uh, inconsistent or uneven. I think that's fair. I, I will agree with you. I am a huge Living Color fan. I wouldn't be on here, obviously, if I wasn't. Mind Your Own Business is my least favorite song of their entire catalog. <laughs> it's just the chorus is weird, just yelling over and over again, mind your own business and leave mine alone. And it's yeah, it's not it's it's not it's not very enjoyable. I think Bi is hilarious. Uh, and I think it's it, the way they handle it is, is really funny. It reminded me of the old Woody Allen joke, which was the advantage to being bisexual is you have twice the chance of getting a date on Friday night. And <laughs> that's kind of what the song's entire message is. And uh, but it, I think, Jeff, I think you made this point or maybe I'm sorry, I think it was you, Scott. In 1993, that was like a miraculous thing to sing about. And, and, and especially right. for a rock band. Right? right. One of the things of later living color that I notice is they do have in every album from this point forward, a nice two to three song run. Yes. It really helps an album. Yeah. In this case, for me personally, it's these three. It starts with Never Satisfied, which is a pretty standard rock song, but it just goes and it's and it's aggressive without being clunky and in the middle is nothingness now nothingness no disrespect to reed or glover two of my very favorite songs by this band happen to be written by will calhoun because nothingness is a calhoun song 
That is that was the most random thing ever. Who would have thought that he had that one? You know, yeah, that was the him. drummer. The drummer did that one. It's a fantastic, beautiful ballad. It is, and it's and lyrically though, it's so introspective. You know, like a descendant, I drifted far, far and wide. Isolation, separation, nowhere to hide. Maybe there's some place I can go where there's sunshine and the wind won't blow. I mean, this is not this is not a sappy early '90s power ballad. This is serious. But musically, it's so beautiful. And then the third song on that run is Postman. Postman to me is one of the most interesting songs they did. It's a Reed song. It's just so dark, but it it works, you know. And it, it, it clearly, I walk through the crowd, nobody sees me. It, it, it definitely is not a song you listen to in the car, pumping your fist in the air. But it just, it, it kind of foreshadows what comes ahead, but it just does it so much better than a lot of the stuff that comes ahead. And so it's actually one of my favorite songs on the album. obvious single and it was for that reason in the middle eight is what makes it we always talk about peace you know and then this the guitar changes and it's just it's really it is you're right it's the best part of the song but it was the obvious single it, it made the most sense there but well, they, were, they were never going to release by as a single although they should have done <laughs> it actually, i think that's almost as good <laughs> i mean if anything i would have said nothingness but and they did actually do a video for nothingness which you can find Another thing I think it's available on YouTube is they actually did. You talked about remixes earlier, Jeff. There's a remix out there that was done for a Dutch TV show of nothingness where it's stripped down just to bare instrumental. And it is absolutely gorgeous. If you can find it out there. I have not heard this. I'm going to have oh, to look it up. 
Yeah, it was uh, for a show in the Netherlands called, I think, Two Meter Sessies, I think it was called. Two Meter Sessions. I, it, it's yeah. well known, a well-known 90s show. Radiohead played them several times, yes. too, so I know what it is. Living Color played it, and they did the song Nothingness, and it was stripped down. Instead of the, the synth guitar, it was piano, and it is oh, it is something else. Oh man, now 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 I'm feeling like I didn't do enough of my research because I would have wanted to like drop a clip in here or something. You, you know, that's on me because I thought about it and I didn't email it to you guys. So <sighs> blame me for that one. Like a descendant, I drifted far. Far and wide Isolation Separation Nowhere to hide Maybe there's somewhere I can go Where there's sun blame you it, you know what okay steve you're off the show no you're not off the show not at all not at all okay. but you know what is off is living color as a band because that's what happens they break up after this album um creative differences i don't really know i don't have any insight you know you know dope on this the, uh, you know I, I should you should probably ask vernon because you know he, he's uh he's actually a, he got a really great twitter account that, that everyone should follow on twitter he's really smart thoughtful guy he has lots of great musical stories to tell and you know it's just clearly him you know just you know, talking and he, he doesn't like you know you know stir up stuff he's just a really interesting follow i recommend uh but uh for whatever reason they broke up in he did 19- say he did say what, what yeah i'm sorry Jeff. i didn't, I didn't interrupt no he no go say, he, he did say in an interview once that one of the reasons why is when muzz skillings leaves the band in 92 uh, they pick up Doug Wimbish right away because, one, he's phenomenal. He's basis for the Sugar Hill Gang, one of the most in-demand session players. But he said they emotionally did not deal because they went right into making Stain with the impact of losing one of their best friends and their bass player from the band. And he thinks that kind of started to pull them apart a little bit. That's something he said in an interview when they reunited eventually. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. You know, they 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 recorded a few songs for like a follow up that never materialized, and you know, you know, they ended up releasing them on their their greatest hits album. Every band that that dissolves before its time has to release the obligatory major label greatest hits album. In this case, it's Pride, which is a decent album actually. Um, uh, there, there are a couple songs on there. Release the pressure, I think, is the one I like the most. Uh, there are a couple other ones I think maybe are more generic. I'm not a fan of sacred ground or, or uh, these are happy times that much um but really what matters the most is that living color ceases to exist as a proposition for uh, i don't know seven years eight years uh, they don't come back together until after 9 11 and in fact this is the 
the funny thing is that I think it was kind of 9-11 that was one of the real spurs for a Brooklynite band to uh, get back together and start re-recording. Um, the issue is is that <laughs> I'm just not at all a fan of that album they put out. It was in 2003, late 2003, and it's called Kaleidoscope. Um, and boy, you know, given those first three records, man, I was waiting for it. Uh, and it is just, it is everything I didn't want. the best way to put it it's, it's just- uh, I, I, and i'm gonna steal some of steve's thunder it's like you talk about how great um how great living color could be as a cover act you know doing other people's songs and and then you just have to sort of sigh and shake your head and say <laughs> oh but damn there's that version of back in black by acdc <laughs> that we just have to deal with uh you guys go on this one it's just a bad album it's it's bad um and, it, you know, again, 10 years off, and this is what you're bringing to the table. Um, it's just, it's, it's probably more uh, sludgy and dirty than Stain, uh, which is not necessarily a terrible thing on that album. And I, I think it is here. I think it works uh, against them in a lot of places. I, I think yeah. there's a, a handful of just really, just really bad songs. Uh, early on, uh, Question of When, Operation Mind Control, I think are both bad songs. Oh, very um, bad song. The Back in Black cover is a bad song. Um, it's a nightmare. It's a, it's a nightmare city. <laughs> which is okay, I think. It's not one of the worst, but it's it's still not a good song. There are only uh, three things I'll mention salvageable. Uh, flying is the best track on the album by far. And For it's, sure. It's one that's yeah. uh, clearly... Uh, written in in the wake of and in reference to uh, the nine eleven t- attacks, it's again a slower track where the bass sort of reasserts itself. Some interesting guitar work throughout. Clear nine eleven references. Uh, such a lovely day to go flying. The talk about you know jumping out of the window to get down to, to the pavement, to get down to the parking lot, parking yeah. lot, right? And uh, uh, so so it's effective both ways. I think that the music supports the lyrics in that way.
And going back to something Steve said, you know, e- each of these albums I think does have a little run of a couple tracks that work. Uh, here there's Lost Halo and Holy Roller back-to-back, which I think are not terrible. And on this album, that qualifies you to be the second and third best songs in the rec- record, probably. <laughs> uh, Lost Halo has a very strong bass line. Some wicked fast fret work from, from Reed. Uh, Holy Roller has a bluesy quality to it that we see in a few albums in the future, uh, but it kind of wasn't part of the repertoire up until this point. I, I think both those are are decent tracks, uh, but Kaleidoscope for me is just a flat-out failure. It's a, it's a face plant after a decade away. I like it better than you guys do. But I don't, and the funny thing is, I don't particularly love it, but I definitely like it better than you guys do. But Flying's clear. Flying is clearly the best song on the on the album. It's the most uh, original. I have to tell this story because it's one of the great. You talk about face plants, Scott. This this is the mother of all media face plants. <laughs> so for those who who you know, flying is a reference to jumping out of the World Trade Center at the time of the 9-11 attacks. That's literally, there's a line in there. I you know, try and get up the courage to ask out, uh, I can't remember the girl's name in the lyric. I looked out the window, oh my God. And then you mentioned the part about jumping out of the window to get to the parking lot. One of the local LA affiliates here on a particularly beautiful winter day in Los Angeles did a video. You know how they do the little videos going in and out of the news, right? Did a video of planes taking off and landing at LAX <laughs> to the song Flying. <laughs> oh. someone's not ideal yeah someone didn't exactly check the lyrics particularly well on that one when they did it a, um, but Google it was such a lovely day to go flying apparently that's the only yeah. part they heard right, right. <laughs> um whoops God. yeah now i do like some other songs on here i actually like song without sin uh it's the opener it, it feels the most like kind of the original three run uh three album run of living color <laughs> I will be the one, I'm not going to stand for it. It's not the greatest song ever, but I don't hate Operation Mind Control. Personally, I, I, it's, I mean, the, it, I will say this. I don't, I don't dislike it musically. I enjoy it musically. It's Lyri- heavy handed lyrically. Oh though. my God. It's he- Guys, I'm the token lib of the three of us. And even <laughs> I think it's heavy handed lyrically. Yeah. Right. Uh, oh yeah. It's, no, it's, it's, it's a little, it's a little bit of a sledgehammer. Um, I too like Lost Halo and Holy Roller. Uh, Sacred Ground was actually something they had done in that uh, run for Pride, and it comes back up on this album, and it and it and passes the the test. But yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot here that doesn't quite make it, and and I will blame. I'm going to quit Living Color. This was to me personally an era of musical darkness when it came to hard rock. This is the Nickelback stained era, everybody. So I'm just going to say, don't blame them. Blame the year. Well, the funny thing is, is okay, here's Nickelback and Stained people. They are the ones who kind of were. Gosh, I hate to even, I hate to even, you know, you know, 
curse the name of Living Color by admitting this, but they were clearly influenced by Living Color. I know. They, that they hurts. This band, and they thought, okay, we're going to do this. Of course, they did it in such an inferior and like, ridiculous and dumb way. But like all of that late, you, you think about like, okay, well, what was the true progenitor of the late 90s sort of hard rock, you know, weird, almost rap rock kind of thing? It, it, you have to just sort of sit there and think, okay, these are – you know, idiot kids trying to do living color. They got vivid and they got times up and they thought, okay, I'll try to do that. But they didn't have to play their instruments and they don't know how to write songs. And so it's kind of depressing for me to go back and then hear this album and think, like, oh no, this sounds just like some of those bands. No. Jeff, Jeff, nothing hurts me more than the fact that a lot of those bands that we're mocking, who are their two biggest influences? Arguably my two favorite bands ever, Living Color and Faith No More. Yes! Yeah, <laughs> does that hurt? Oh, man. Yeah, Mike Patton and Vernon Reed could probably get together over beers and commiserate about how bad it feels to be the people who influenced Puddle of Mud. But anyways, <laughs> anyways that takes us. That takes us to uh, uh, not the last album, but the second to last album. At this point, Living Color seems to be sort of like a sort of a periodic proposition. They do get together every like seven years or something like that, six years, and just like, yeah, hey, let's make an album. What do you feel like? Yeah, you want to do it? I'll do it. All right, what are you doing right now? I can clear my schedule. So in 2009, out comes The Chair in the Doorway. And I got to say, I like this one a little bit more than – than, um, than you know, their first reunion record, but I do not like it that much. Thankfully, this is not the way the show will end, but I'm not a huge fan of the chair in the doorway either. I wanted to know if you guys wanted to disagree with me. You know, my favorite song on the album, I'll just say out of the way, is, is four minutes and 33 seconds. The 433, okay. the John Cage cover, which yeah. is, by the way, this is like, a, a, again, an art school joke. John Cage's 433 is just literally him sitting at a bench at a piano <laughs> uh, and doing nothing, no sounds, for four minutes and 33 seconds. And that's, you know, art, that's avant-garde classical music for you. Uh, and they, they quote-unquote covered it as well. And it's good. They did, I, I really love the way they interpreted that song. <laughs> anyway, sorry. You guys, go for it. I like the album in place. Again, three-song run, right? There's three songs right in the middle of this album that I actually enjoy a great deal, and they start with Method. Method has this really slow beginning. It, again, lyrically, it's a bit heavy-handed. It's, it's about, you know, it starts with a reference to the environment and the urgency of things, and then it builds to this more general lyric about, you know, there's a method to the madness, there's a reason to this rhyme. But musically, the way it builds as the song goes on is really, really nice. There's a method to the madness
Then there's Behind the Sun, which is a more standard rock song, which I really enjoy. Mm Mm-hmm. And then my favorite song on the album is the next track, which is called Bless Those, yep. mm-hmm. which is very yeah. bluesy. And it's actually, it's a Doug Wimbish uh, contribution with uh, Annie Bendez. And oh man, it, it just, the chorus, it, you know, it's bless all these people. And then at the end, the chorus is those that could go either way. And I, I always kind of like the, the, the messaging there. Bless the shelter, bless the destructor. point out after that four minutes and 33 seconds of silence is the funniest thing living color ever did it's a very <laughs> short song called ass and it is it's a, a song. Really good, it's a good song it's hilarious yeah it's a it's a breakup song so the start the song starts with you know this bird came down next to me and said you're such an ass and all these you know that he catches the, my favorite line of any living color song ever is the middle verse i caught a fish that fish was pissed I've been caught by an asshole. And the whole premise of the song is he broke up with this woman and the whole world is rejecting him for because he was such a, a fine woman. It's so tongue in cheek and so dang funny and it so doesn't fit with the rest of this album. me as a reverse Ben Fold 5 song, okay? Because, you know, like, you know, you think of, like, you know, uh, you know, the Ben Fold 5, you know, song for the, or a song for the dumps, oh, right? It's one of my favorites. Right, right. <clears throat> Where it's about, like, you know, the girl, you know, left me, broke my heart, you know, so F you. But uh, this is the opposite. It's like, I broke up with her, and now everyone's saying to me, F you. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I've made a terrible mistake. It oh. is a pretty fun song. But Steve's right in that it doesn't fit. I mean, that's why it comes after the uh, the silence. I, I guess it's it's uh, it it doesn't fit the rest of the album. Which um, you know it, it would have been more in line with with something off of Vivid, perhaps, or would fall in line there. But it doesn't change the fact that it's got a great it's got a great melody and it's a fun song. Um, I'm with Jeff. I, I think this is a little better than Kaleidoscope. A little more fully realized. I think what they were trying to do on that first album. By now they're on. Like Megaforce Records, which is a metal label, so 
it does kind of explain the grindingness and again the heaviness and the metalness of a lot of songs uh, just thick pulsing bass and drums all over the place on a chair in the doorway steve i did the best stuff on the album i think it is it's right there in the middle behind the sun uh and bless those are are, are both really really good songs i like a lot Burn Bridges, I think the first track on the album, I'm not sold in the verses, but it's a really solid chorus. Uh, they're still writing some good pieces uh, amid sort of the, the sludgy grindingness of a lot of these tracks. Uh, something like Out of Mind, I think it's like, okay, but then Corey Glover is, is growling his vocals on Out of Mind in a lot of places, and he's just far too good <laughs> to do stuff like that. Um, and then that's in a few places here on uh, the chair in the doorway. So it's better than Kaleidoscope, but I, I think it's still a pretty far cry from their best work and from their most latest album, which is not bad at all. And that's Shade, which I think came out in 2017. I didn't make a note of it here in... Uh, yeah, it was 2017. 2017, so only a, a couple of years ago. So yeah, that means that we you know three years from now we'll get the next Living Color album. Maybe at the rate at the rate these things seem to go, <laughs> Shade is pretty good. Um, it, it's 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 not you know a, a classic like those first two. I don't know where I'd put it next to something like the third album, but uh, I, I think it's far 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 better than the previous two. It, it it harkens back a little more to the sound of those first two albums. Uh, putting the funk back in funk metal, funk rock. I think the songs here are clearly better arranged, better crafted. Uh, the blues covers are better too, actually, in my opinion, too. The what? It, what? It? The, the covers are oh, better. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, There's about a quarter uh, of the album are, are covers. Uh, Robert Johnson, uh, preaching blues, which is great. And yeah, the, the bluesy influences show up here more than on past albums on a few cuts. Of course, the Robert Johnson cover. Great cover of Inner City Blues uh, right toward the end of the album. The last track on Shade is something called Two Sides, and it's just a total, total showcase for Vernon Reed. What an amazing display of his guitar skills all over two sides. Fantastic track. Uh, there's one called Come On early in the album. Um, softer verses, a more aggressive chorus. It kind of has these... Uh, glitchy, deconstructed beats throughout that work better than perhaps I'm describing it. Uh, but there are, um, uh, like, Glass Teeth is a heavier song that I think works, I think that works better here than it did on either of the past two albums with incorporating uh, sort of the, the heaviness and the, and, and, and the sludginess that, that still is in places here. But it's a little brighter, it's a little bluesier, it's better. This is, a, this is not a bad album at all. 
and I got to tell you, the third cover is the one to me that was maybe the most ambitious cover that Living Color ever did, and I would argue it's one of the best, which is a cover of the Notorious B.I.G.'s Who Shot You? Who Shot You, yeah. It's really, really well done. They, you think a rock band covering a rap song is just a recipe for god-awful disaster, but it's not. Corey Glover makes the lyrics fit and work, and just the musicianship on it is amazing. They, they actually take the beat from the original Biggie song the, and the melody that's that's the backbone to it, and they turn it into guitar and bass and drums, and it works. And the chorus is powerful. It ends with some strength. And the thing that gets me about that song is it just shows, here are these guys. It is now 27 years. or No, take that. I'm sorry. That's why I'm a history teacher, not a math teacher. <laughs> 20, 29 years since their first album. And it's like when I heard who... Who Shot You was the first thing they released. They released a video of it. And you just sit there and you say, oh my goodness, these guys still have it. Three decades later, these guys still have it. I have to say, I, I, I was heartened by this. This is the one that I actually did hear at the time. I, I came back to it only for the show. So I don't, you know, I don't have like the, the reacting in the moment, uh, you know, experience that you have, Steve. But when I did come back to it for the show, I was, I think, you know, the reason I didn't hear it is because I was so disappointed with those last two reunion albums. I was like, well, whatever, you know, was like, you know from 2009 to 2017, like, well, what's happened is I've gotten married, I've moved, I'm a different man now, I don't have time for this, <laughs> I've started a podcast, I don't have September of 2017 when the album came out. Yeah. I, I, I didn't pick just it up. Just underway. And, then, and I went back to just listen to it this week, you know, for the show. And I was really, really pleased with it. And you're right. The Biggie Smalls cover is the best thing here, which is the audacity of it. You know, it, it's funny how, you know, what we you know, hip hop artists and rappers will sample, you know, like, you know, like, you know, rock musicians and pop musicians and put that in their music. And this is sort of like a weird kind of funhouse version of reverse sampling. They're not sampling the original Biggie Smalls. Uh, they're just trying to recreate it musically, and they somehow pull it off in a, in a way they have absolutely no right to do. I also um, I, I think Scott actually stole my, uh, my, my thoughts here on two sides. I think that was the other one that I would have cited as the, as the best song on the record. <laughs>
this one makes me think they still have something something left in the tank and uh that that is very pleasing because this is sort of like that was one of those late period nine inch nails albums where you realize that hey you know what trent reznor isn't entirely out of ideas yet you know that's good to know i really would like to think that that we're going to get like another one of these living color albums as i said you know at the rate they're going it's like a six-year gap so like you know maybe in 2023 we will get the, the follow-up to shade and we'll just all be able to commiserate about it on our rocking chairs uh, and on, on, on the front of the old folks' home. Uh, but th- they still have something left. And it's it's also just kind of fun to see them coming back together randomly uh, as sort of like, you know, kind of like, you know, an art experiment, which is, I think, in a weird way, despite the fact that they were always playing arenas back in their heyday, kind of what Living Color always was. It was just, you know, an experiment that sort of got carried away. That, you know, got got carried away by its own logic, and the music took over, and the concept took over, and they they really just fell in love with the beauty of being people who could do music that no one else could do, and did it well. And uh, I guess that to me has always been the story of Living Color, a band that you know sort of always was there to sort of flummox your expectations, force you to think, force you to check yourself, and uh, has really really stood up to the test of time there we are the political beats look at living color and we come to the part of the episode where all the hosts tell you the two albums that you should own the five songs you need to hear from our featured band living color steve stingizer singizer is with us contributing editor for daily co's elections steve the floor is yours for your two albums and your five songs Okay, I'm going to throw a curveball on the albums, but the first one is not a curveball. It, it has to be what it is, which is Time's Up. There's a reason that when the Grammy Award was given for Hard Rock two times up, it wasn't given to one track in the album. It was given to the entire album. And that's because the album in itself is an experience. And we talked about it earlier. From beginning to end, it tells a story. The songs themselves stand the test of time 30 years later. It's the one you have to have. And that's no disrespect to Vivid. It's just as a as a whole, it's it's just so immaculate from beginning to end. And the curveball I'm going to throw is I'm going to tell you that you should go get the 2005 if you can find it live at C- CBGBs because this is a band that you need to hear live. And it's the and it's the vivid stuff. So I'm kind of getting a twofer here. I'm cheating in a way, which usually I know Jeff as the host reserves the right to pick an extra track or pick an extra whatever. <laughs> but I'm kind of cheating here because. The Live at CBGB's is mostly stuff from the Vivid album. Five songs. I know that we're going to have some repetition here because I thought I was being clever not saying Cult of Personality and saying Open Letter to a Landlord, but I'm going to stick with it because it is a great early song that shows both their social consciousness but also their ability to craft an amazing song beginning to end. My number two song is off Time's Up, and it's Pride. Pride is just such a hard rocking. It's their hard version that, you know, the, the more muscular version of living color at their absolute best. Third song also off times up is solace of you because it is the most inventive creative of their slower, more easygoing stuff. And it just lyrically and musically meshes so dang beautifully. My fourth is nothingness from stain again, two will Calhoun songs, you know, who would have thunk it, but that song just has such a beauty to it and probably is one of their most soulful and sensitive songs. 
in a way that doesn't come off as schlocky. And fifth, what the heck, I'm going to throw it out there just because they proved that they still had it. I'll say that my fifth song, Off of Shade, is Who Shot You. Uh, my two albums, uh, I'm going the conventional way, Vivid and Time's Up. Um, and and really want to stress that Time's Up is so good. Time's Up is an album that really really deserves to be to be heard. Uh, on the songs, yeah, we're going to duplicate ourselves here. Uh, Open Letter to a Landlord is on my list. Uh, Steve already discussed. Uh, I think Which Way to America from Vivid is also well, well worth tracking down. Pride from the second album, which, yes, Steve already mentioned. Uh, In Another Life, the final track from uh, from Time's Up, that, that very well could be my, my favorite living color song. And uh, going back and forth a bit on this, and uh, I, I, I'll go with Leave It Alone from that, uh, that third album. Uh, again, a little heavier, darker stuff from, uh, from that third album. Leave It Alone will round up my five. Jeff, over to you. Well, uh, I'm, I'm going to actually have to echo you, Scott, on the albums. Yes, it, it's a very basic thing, but I am a basic person. Uh, I am going to have to go with Vivid, and I'm going to have to go with Time's Up for my two albums. They're just great. By the way, I think Stain is also a fantastic record, and I actually think Shade is pretty good, too. So there's a lot here to explore. Um, and also, you, you know, you, you really couldn't go wrong checking out their little, like, you know, B-Sides EP. Uh, Biscuits is pretty fun. But for my five songs, uh, I'm going to have to be that guy since nobody else wanted to volunteer for it. I'm going to pick <laughs> Cult of Personality man can't can't avoid it can't avoid it it was the big break they had it still holds up today it's got a killer riff it's got a great middle eight it's got really intelligent and thoughtful lyrics that work on multiple levels there's a reason this song is basically the one song that you know you normies know living color by uh there's a hundred other songs that you should know by them but this is this is the one for a reason i think the second one i'll choose is um from Time's Up is Love Rears Its Ugly Head. Another one I'm surprised no one mentioned. I will stipulate, however, that I only want to ever hear this song in its Soul Power remix, <laughs> which is the single version, in other words. This is the version, it's on the Greatest Hits album. And so that's the one, it, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. I'm pretty sure at this point we've already dropped a clip or two of it in. Uh, it's awesome. And it's I think, in my opinion, so much better in the remix, which makes it sort of, I guess, you know, gentler and more kind of, you know, mystical, I suppose, than than the more straight ahead version that's on Time's Up. Uh, the best song on Time's Up, however, is Type. Uh, and I think that's the mm-hmm. one that, mm-hmm. to me, epitomizes what's so great about the album. So that's my third choice. Uh, my fourth pick is going to be Leave It Alone. If I'm going to pick an album, a song from Stain, it will be Leave It Alone, even though I went into great length criticizing the sort of, you know, sort of mediocrity of the verses and the chorus. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because that middle eight man, that sends me over the moon and straight out into the outer solar system. I love it so much. And the one I'm going to end with is another one uh, from Vivid, and that is the one that three of us have mentioned, all all three of us have mentioned, and that's Open Letter to a Landlord. Um, you, you would have thought, like, doing a serious, thoughtful, socially, you know, uh, you know, socially conscious ballad would be a recipe for disaster. This is one of the most beautiful songs of Living Color's career. This is one of the most beautiful songs of its era 
It's a song everyone should hear. And I just, every time I hear Corey Glover sing that song, I get chills. I get goosebumps up and down my back. It's that good, and I'm that impressed by it. the political beats look at the career of living color thank our guests on today's program contributing editor daily co's elections steve singizer steve find him at at steve singizer on twitter thanks so much for joining us here on political beats guys it's been a pleasure i've been time my life with you guys talking about music and talking about this band in particular and so i I can't thank you enough for having me on and and those of you that are listening, you've now been you've now been baptized into the world of living color. It's definitely something you need to check out. It's like that scene in The Wizard of Oz where it goes from black and white to color. Now you're in living color. That's there it. you go. <laughs> Jeff, we plan for the end of the year, and also uh, we don't have expectations. We have people uh, people are supporting us. We got we got to work even harder on the program. Oh God, I pl- I plan to get as lazy as possible just to. <laughs> Just, just to you know, you know, to mock all the the, the pokes who, who gave their hard earned money to us. <laughs> at Esoteric CD on Twitter, my name's Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Reminder to subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right at NationalReview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, and leave reviews. As we alluded to, we have a uh, we have a reason to work a little harder. That's our Patreon account. And you can help support us. We have convinced National Review and R to, uh, to to not include any advertisements on the show. We keep it ad-free. And uh, that means that they're not going to monetize it for us. So we are trying to do a little bit. This, this show is uh, a little more involved and a little more prepped than was originally planned out. But we love it so. Uh, and if you want to help us, this is your opportunity. Uh, there are different levels out there. Patreon.com slash Political Beats. Uh, for voting on future episodes, uh, getting a shout-out on an episode, uh, a little bit uh, higher level, early access to episodes. You'll get them essentially when they're done, don't have to wait for the release, and also a higher quality audio file. And then also the highest uh, level at this point, some access to exclusive material, exclusive episodes that Jeff and uh, I will do once a month. We're thinking between 30 and 60 minutes, some smaller subjects, maybe some lists or rankings, some ideas from you guys out there, our Patreon supporters, some bands that don't uh, deserve the full treatment, the full two hours or so, two and a half hours, but maybe we can squeeze them into a shorter length. 
That'll be all sorts of the uh, topics we cover on our exclusive episodes for our Patreon supporters. Uh, Please check it out. Give it some thought. We'd love to have you there supporting us and being part of our Political Beats community at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. And we say thank you here to some of our early supporters via the Patreon site for helping us with the program. Philip Maddox, DGB, Jamie McCleary, Dan Goldbeck, Michael O'Connor, Pat Mruz, Victor Nering, James Gilliam, Jonathan Wells, all among our early Patreon supporters. We can't thank you enough for... uh, supporting us for helping us do what we do here on political beats thank you so much find us on twitter at political underscore beats this has been a presentation of national review this is political beats political beats